Have you ever in your life, and this is rhetorical, and I know that everyone in here is going to say yes to this, have you ever done something, um, maybe you confronted someone, or you had a conversation, or you wrote a letter, and immediately upon letting the words out of your mouth, or hitting send on the email or the text message, or watching the postal worker carry that letter off, immediately felt regret and had the thought come into your mind, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I know that I have. I know that I've let words out of my mouth. I remember talking back to my mom when I was a kid. And the words came out, and the thought followed immediately. You shouldn't have said that. You know? And it was followed up by confirmation of the rap in the beak, you know, or, or whatever it was. You know? But we all know what it's like to do that, to... Uh, to, 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 to speak our mind because we feel pressed, we feel that it's fitting, we feel that we're right in a situation. But then immediately after doing it, we see the other side of things in a way that maybe we hadn't before, and we regret the fact that we did what we did. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthians. It's 1 Corinthians, the letter that we're just finishing. And of all the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians is by far the toughest. He starts right in on them from the very beginning, addressing all the things that were wrong with their congregation and saying very little to them about what was right. And the reason for that is because there was very little in their congregation that was right. But immediately upon sending that letter and watching it disappear and no longer be in his control to retract he immediately began to feel regret. The father heart of Paul that wrote that letter because he knew things needed to be addressed was immediately confronted by the mother heart of Paul that says, hey, 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 ease off, they're baby Christians. Maybe you should relax just a little bit. And Paul was in torment for months not knowing how they would respond to the letter or if it was too harsh or if what he intended to be for their good would actually have the contrary effect upon them and that they would hear it and not receive it with gratitude, but rather they would rebel and kick against it and things would ultimately get worse. And so that was the, the emotion of Paul in the interim between writing 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He was waiting to receive word back, message from the church as to how that first letter was received and what the result of that exhortation was before writing this next letter or even before going there in person. Now, ultimately, word does come back to Paul that the letter was well received. And in that, there was great rejoicing on his part. His heart relaxed. He was relieved because he realized, man, it worked out for the good. They heard my heart. They, they weren't offended by the harshness of it or the, uh, the difficulty of the things that I was challenging them with. And now I can breathe easy because things have been set right in that congregation. They've received the exhortation. Now, that opened the door for Paul to now write Second Corinthians, which is by far the most passionate, the deepest, the most intimate, the, the, the richest maybe of all the epistles that Paul has written in the New Testament and by far the most personal, absolutely. And I can't help but on this note, think of all of the exhortations that are given to us in the book of Proverbs about the value of receiving instruction, of how important it is that when somebody who genuinely cares about us gives to us a word that's corrective or that is conf confrontational because of something they might see in our lives that might be a blind spot for us. And I, I actually wrote a bunch of them down. Um, in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 5, it says that a wise man will hear and will increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain unto wise counsels. Proverbs chapter 9, 8 and 9, it says, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Again, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, it says that the wise in heart will receive commandments, but a prating fool shall fall. 10, 17, 
He is in the way of life that keeps instruction, but he that refuses reproof erreth. Proverbs 12.1. Whoso loves instruction loves knowledge, but he that hates reproof is brutish. 13.1. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scorner hears not rebuke. Proverbs 15.5. A fool despises his father's instruction, but he that regards reproof is prudent. 15.12. A scorner loves not one that reproves him, neither will he go unto the wise. Proverbs 15.30. Are you getting the point? <laughs> I mean, the Bible usually says something twice, and that serves as confirmation that this is absolute, sometimes three times. But as you read the Proverbs, it's over and over and over and over again. It finishes in 27.6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And so as we consider Paul's reproof towards them, it shows that they were actually wise and it opened the door, listen, for greater intimacy between Paul, their pastor, and them as a congregation. And I believe that the same dynamic exists not just between person to person, but also in our relationship with God. I believe that as we open our hearts and allow God and allow God's word specifically to correct us in areas of our life where we're wrong and we don't resist it and say, God, that's just unreasonable what you're asking of me, but instead we embrace it and we say, God, I want my life to be a reflection of your word. Then not only does he call us wise and are we considered pleasing in his sight, but it opens the door for a greater intimacy between us and our Lord. We move a little bit closer from being servants to being sons and daughters. And that's always the, 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 the treasure or the desire or the goal of God is to bring us closer to himself. And when he sees in us that kind of an attitude, it's pleasing in his sight. And so Paul rejoices with the heart of God that they had received the, the, the exhortation, and thus he now writes 2 Corinthians. Now, if you were to write a theme over it, or if you were to ask Paul what was in your heart or in your mind that you wanted to convey to the Corinthians in the writing of the second epistle, it would be, the, the answer to that would be, what is an authentic Christian? Or what is authentic or genuine Christianity or what God produces in the life of one uh, that, that, that calls themselves a Christian? Now, authenticity or genuineness, sincerity, is defined as the attribute of not being false or copied, but genuine or real. And the test of authenticity in terms of whatever it is that you're seeking to prove is never that it's measured by its appearance, but always by its content or what it's made of. We've all heard of fool's gold, haven't we? We've all seen a cubic zirconium, those fake diamonds that are just made of glass, but they're cut to look precisely like diamonds. And if we were to judge based upon the appearance of a thing, we might say, that's gold, or I recognize that, that's a diamond. But upon further examination, not of just the appearance on the outside, but the actual content of what that substance is made out of, you'd come to the conclusion that this is not a lump of gold at all. It's not a diamond at all. It's just made to look like one. It's not authentic. It's not genuine. It's just made to look like something, but that's not the something that it is. Now, apply it to a Christian. There is a such thing as someone who looks like a Christian on the outside. But when you get underneath and you see the substance of what's within, you find that they're, well, maybe not really a Christian at all. Or what's on the inside is at least not matching what's on the outside or the profession. Everyone who will be in heaven or everyone that is a Christian that's born again starts that relationship with God at the moment that they're born again. We give our lives to Jesus Christ. We say, God, I recognize that I'm a sinner and that I need your salvation. I was made by you, but I'm flawed and fallen. And the only perfection in this world is your son, Jesus. And he died on a cross for my sins. And I see that now. And I open my heart and want him to come inside and be the Lord and Savior of my life. 
and I want to be redeemed and saved by you. So fill me with yourself. I want to be your son or daughter in Jesus' name. And we pray that prayer from our heart, maybe not in those words, but God sees that that's who we become. And at that moment, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God comes into our heart and we're regenerated, we're born again. And when that happens, you know it. Maybe you don't feel something automatically or lights turn on or you hear music, but something happens in your life very definitely. And you start to understand you, the, the, the anxiety of why you were made and the questions of your origins and of your destiny. Those things are suddenly settled and what was once unsettled becomes peaceful inside and, and there's a light that goes on. There's a life that is born inside. And the world changes, life changes, things change. And for many, there's, there's almost a euphoria, an ecstasy. There's something alive that was never alive before. And we, we all start there. We all have that. But then we walk with God for a little while. Man, the Bible comes to life. We go to church and we like it for the first time. Our, 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 our um, desires change. We go from wanting evil things to wanting holy things. And it doesn't even make sense to us, but we know something's happened. But after a week or a month or sometimes a year, all of a sudden, old things in our lives begin to crop back up again. The things that were attributes of us, of our, of our self-life before we came to Christ. Old habits, old attitudes, old desires. Those things resurface and we begin to see them there. And we go, wait a minute, wait a minute. That was something in my life, but I no longer want that to be something in my life. But yet I find that it's still there. And what happens to every Christian at that point is that a conflict begins. The Bible calls it the war between the flesh or the old man and the spirit, that is the new man. And at that point, we can handle that in one of three ways. And everyone handles that battle in one of three ways. Number one is that they slowly begin to backslide. They slowly begin to creep back into the old life and just give way to those old things. And little by little, the new life is choked out until it's just a smoldering ember in such a small part of the life. And they just kind of go back to their old life, their old ways. The second way that you can handle it, and this is the best way, is that you can take those things as they come up to the cross of Christ. And you say, God, this, this was me and it's still there, but I don't want it there anymore and I want you to take it away. And you can bring those things to God and he can flush them out of your life as he promises that he will. We confess our sin, 1 John 1, 9. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. That is, he forgives it and removes it from our lives. And so with patience and faith and endurance, we watch God take those things out of our lives one at a time in his way and in his time and we grow in our faith and our walk with God. And in the process of that, we become authentic Christians, genuine. The inside matches what we are on the outside. Now there's a third way and the third way is this, is that we have the old man and the new man and we know that we're not supposed to be the old man anymore. And we're struggling with the fact that we are. And we don't know what to do with it. And now we've come into a Christian world and a Christian life and we have Christian friends and we're in a Christian church. And what we were will never be acceptable in that atmosphere and in that setting. And so we don't let it out. Instead, we just cover it up. We cover the old man in his deeds. So those things still make up what we are. We still think according to the old life. We still desire and lust after the affections of the old life. We're still driven by the desires of the old life. But everything that everyone sees is the new life. So we speak scripture. We memorize scripture. We make sure that we know the Bible so that when people ask us what we believe, we can accurately lay forth truth in a systematic way so that people can say, okay, well, that person's right on in their Christian experience. They know what it means to be a Christian and they speak what it is to be a Christian. And all of a sudden what's happened is that there's a double life. I'm a Christian in the eyes of everyone who sees me, but what I am on the inside is I'm great in a great way, unchanged, 
because I haven't dealt with these things and brought them to their proper conclusion at the foot of the cross. That's a non-authentic Christian. And sadly, that's where most people kind of end up in some way. They don't want that inside thing to necessarily be gone, but they certainly don't want that inside thing to necessarily be exposed. So they cover it with a thin veneer of Christian lingo, of Christian doctrine and knowledge, and Christian fellowship so that everything looks good even though things aren't real good. Now, what Paul is seeking to bring the Corinthian church into is the full experience of the authentic Christian life. He wrote 1 Corinthians because they needed to be sanctified. They had all these issues going on. He found in them a willingness to deal with all of those things. And so now he says, let's take it to the next level. You want to know the glory of what it means to be a Christian? I'm going to share it with you. I'm going to give to you, Paul says, the secret of what drives me as a Christian and what makes my Christianity what it is. I'm living, Paul would say, the abundant life that Jesus promised to those that follow him. And everyone who professes his name can live the same thing. And I'm going to tell you what that looks like in my life. And I'm going to tell you how you can find it in your own. And that's what 2 Corinthians is. That's the motive and the reason. It's what is, what, it, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a sincere Christian? Not what do we believe? That's Romans. Not how do we behave? That's 1 Corinthians. That's Ephesians. That's other parts of the Bible. This is what we are. Get under the surface, peel back the hood and the, and the, the veneer of the whole thing. What is a Christian on the inside? What does it mean to be conformed into the image of Christ on the inside? What does it mean to be spirit-filled, not just spirit-covered? That's what Paul gets into in this chapter. And so um, what is produced in the life of one who is sanctified? Sanctification is a funny word, isn't it? It's one of those Bible words. It's like one of those old King James words that, you know, um, you know I, I'm never going to say that. I, it just wouldn't sound right if I said that in real life, sanctified. But it's actually a very important word. It's very powerful. And what sanctified literally means, it actually has two definitions. The first is kind of, um, to, it, it just means to be set apart. You know, so like if I have, uh, you know, um, you say like 10 of something in my house and three of them are mine. I, if I separate those three and put them in a special place, I've sanctified them, they're mine. And so in that context, each of us is already sanctified because we are set apart for God. He has taken us out of the world. He's put us in his church, not the building, but the, uh, the church that he calls the church, which is the entire body of Christ. And he says, you are sanctified. That's positional. But the other definition of sanctified is this. It means the process of being changed from what we were to what he's making us in Christ. And sanctification is a process. And there are three things that happen to every believer. Number one is salvation. That's when we're born again. Number two is sanctification. That's that process of us being changed and being made authentic. And then number three is glorification. And that's when we are raptured or we die and we are immediately changed and everything else about us that needs to die automatically does and we are transformed and we're in his presence perfected. So salvation, instantaneous at the moment we give our lives to Christ. Salvation, I'm sorry, sanctification, a lifelong process of being conformed into his image and then glorification when we reach the finish line and we find ourselves in his presence. And so this epistle about what it means to be sanctified, what's produced in the one in the life of one who is. The outline of the book is, is like this, at least the first seven chapters. The theme really is in the first seven chapters. The rest is kind of just like, oh yeah, and by the way. But um, in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 14, the Apostle Paul gives to us the source of sanctification in his own life. And you're not going to like what it is, um, but we're all going to go through it and you'll like it when it's over. <laughs> it's pain, <laughs> a precursor. <laughs> uh, verses one, or chapter 1, verse 15 through uh, 2.13 um, highlights our need 
in sanctification, which is that we need discipleship and a challenge, um, and that's Paul to these people, and so he talks about that a little bit. Then in chapter 2, verses 14, all the way through the end of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the glory of sanctification, or that is what we have in Christ. And that is, first of all, what the Holy Spirit does in us in chapter 3, and then what the Holy Spirit does through us in chapter 4. And then in chapter 5, he talks about the end of our sanctification, which is the glory that awaits us, what is to come, and that which motivates our service. And then in chapters 6 and 7, he summarizes the reason why sanctification matters. And what it all boils down to is that if we want to live the fullness of the Christian life, then this is what matters. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it's experienced and it's found. And so it begins the letter with Paul sharing um, his own experience of sanctification. So chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, who at this time is with Paul, he hadn't been at the end of the last epistle, but they've joined together by now, unto... So the author now addressed to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints, which are in all Achaia. So not just the church in Corinth to be reached by this, but also all of the churches that have sprung out of that area, uh, the house churches and the other fellowships in that region of the world. Paul wanted this letter to be spread along to them as well. And then his typical greeting in verse two, he says, grace be to you and peace from God, our father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, always the Siamese twins of the New Testament. Paul starts every one of his letters with this greeting, with the exception of Timothy and Titus, in which in those he adds the word mercy because they're written to pastors, and Paul knew that pastors needed mercy and grace and peace. (laughs) And so they get the mercy thrown in. The rest, uh, you just get grace and peace, you know. But they're important words and they're important themes. Because what it expresses, and he he gives it to us there by saying that it's from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, is that this is the expression of God's heart towards you. And it's grace. I was just studying Exodus with my kids. We're going through it right now. And we just did chapter 32. And that's a heavy chapter of the Bible. It's the one where Moses comes down from the mountain with the tables of stone and he finds a giant orgy taking place amongst the children of Israel beneath. And he breaks the tablets of stone and and, and it's an ugly scene. And that day, 3,000 people die because of their sin before the Lord. And I shared with my kids, and and as we worked through that, um, that instance and that passage, we were talking about the severity of the law and how on the day the law came down, Not only was it broken figuratively in the tables themselves, but literally in the actions of the people. But on that day, 3,000 people died, and the reason is because the law can produce and bring nothing but death. But contrast that with the day the Holy Spirit came down, on the day of Pentecost. On the day the Holy Spirit came down, after Jesus was crucified, buried, and then risen again and ascended, 3,000 people passed from death to life. So the same number of people that died when the law came, came to life on the day that the Spirit came. The Bible says in the Gospel of John chapter 1 that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And it says that the law of the Spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And what the law could not do in that it was imperfect through our sinful flesh, what God accomplished in sending the Holy Spirit is that he provided grace that would cover our failure to keep the law. And the heart of God towards his people today, even right now, is grace. God's heart towards you is grace. He's not looking at you and measuring all of your failures and all of the things that you did wrong. He's looking at you and in his mind, he sees what he's making you in Christ and all of that is a byproduct of grace. And the person that seeks to still relate to God according to the law, God, I promise I'll do this if you do that, that person will never experience the glory of God in their life 
But to the person who can say, God, I receive everything that you have for me by grace. And I know that there's nothing good in myself. And let my whole life just be absorbed in who you are. That person will experience the fullness of God's grace and his pleasure and his love within their life. And that's his heart towards us. It's what he wants for each of our lives. And the result of that naturally and automatically is going to be peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so because of grace provided on the cross, we have peace. And thus, grace and peace always in that order. From God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he gets right in in verse 3. He says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. So they get mercy thrown in too in verse 3. And the God of all comfort. Now the King James says comfort. The word is encouragement. If you're reading a new King James, you might have encouragement written in your Bible. Either one of those. It is very comforting to be encouraged. So they're somewhat synonymous in this context. But he says that he's the God of all comfort or encouragement who, in verse 4, comforts us in all of our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. Now immediately as I read this, it raises a question in my mind, is, isn't all of this just a little bit unnecessary? I mean, why would he need to comfort me in all of my tribulation? Why doesn't he just comfort me by removing all of my tribulation? then I wouldn't need the comfort and we could save ourselves all the trouble. I wouldn't have to go through the tribulation and he wouldn't have to expend the energy to comfort me. But where Paul's going with this, the conclusion of that or the answer to that will be then the whole process of sanctification will become quite pointless. Because a part of what God is doing and producing in us what he's producing and giving to us what he's giving to us is the problem or the process that pain produces within our lives and then the result of that pain and what uh, God does on the other side of it. And so he says, yes, you have been hurt by the epistle that I wrote to you, but God's the one that's going to bring comfort. He comforts us in our trials. And part of the reason for that is that we might be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted from God. Now, verse 5, you think, okay, let's move along from the suffering stuff. I'm done with it. No, we're not. We just started. He says, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so the consolation or the encouragement, the comfort also aboundeth by Christ. Now, wait a minute. The Bible says that Jesus suffered once for sins and that he suffered in my place, right? The answer to that is, of course, yes, a resounding yes. He suffered in our place. So what exactly does Paul mean then when he says, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us? The sufferings of Christ really happened in two different ways. The first, of course, the most obvious was upon the cross, and that's where he bore our sins. And certainly that suffering is not a suffering that you and I will ever endure. He took and bore that for us. But there was a whole nother set of sufferings that took place in the life of Christ that you and I are very much partakers of. In that we are sons, or those that follow the example, we experience what he experienced. And while he walked this earth, there was a certain amount of suffering that he endured, and that suffering served a purpose. And that purpose plays a part in our lives as well. You say, what were those sufferings? Well, the first one is the suffering that brought sanctification. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, the writer of the book of Hebrews writes, and he says this. He says, concerning Jesus, he says, but we see Jesus, who is made a little bit lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man for it became him for whom are all things all things were made for him and by whom are all things all things were made by him in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now hold on to that for just a second. It says that he is the captain of our salvation. Now if someone is a captain 
and, and he's the captain over those that are saved, then that means that those that are saved are following in the footsteps of their captain or following his orders, right? And what it's saying to us here is that as it happened to the captain, so it will happen to us. And so it says concerning Jesus that it, it pleased the Father that, that it would be through sufferings that his obedience would be displayed and thus the sanctification would be demonstrated. What does that mean? It means that sanctification in our lives comes through the sufferings that we endure. It's part of the process. You cannot avoid it. No matter what, if you want to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to go through things that hurt within this life because those hurts produce something that changes us on the inside. And Jesus went through it himself. It behooved God that he would. And so the, the suffering of uh, you know, that brings sanctification. Also, it was through suffering that there was power to resist temptation in the life of Christ. If you go just a little bit further on in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that's us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help them also that are tempted. So Jesus suffered being tempted. And in the process of that, he is now also able to help us in our temptation. So we read Luke chapter four and we see the temptations of Christ. And we see not only what he endured, but we see how he endured it. And for us, it's a help in our own battle against temptation and encouragement to tell us that we can beat it as well. And so suffering in temptation brings us victory over sin, but it's the sufferings of Christ. The writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about how Jesus learned obedience through suffering. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says that though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And so suffering brings obedience as well. As it says concerning Jesus, that was his suffering to, to obey. He did always those things that pleased the Father. And that meant suffering because of the persecution and the rejection that he would endure. And so also for us, we go through a suffering in our pursuit to obey. I remember one time being at a pastor's conference and um, before Pastor Chuck Smith died and he was up on the stage with uh, a couple of other pastors and they were just kind of taking questions from the 800 men that were there uh, listening. And one of the, the guys stood up and he, he asked Pastor Chuck, he said, my question is for Pastor Chuck. Um, he said, God has used your life in such an incredible way. Uh, you, you've literally reached the world. You know, there, there is radio stations and um, and your messages and, and Calvary chapels and, and just what, what, has, what God has done through your life is so big. He said, how in the world do you stay humble and keep from touching the glory and, and receiving praise as it's heaped upon you as it is? And I thought, man, that's such a good question. I can't wait to hear his answer to it. And he just smiled and he kind of like looked as though he was like seeing into heaven already. And he took the microphone and he laughed, that deep Chuck Smith. If you ever heard him, that laugh, he was, <laughs> And then he just looked at the guy and he said, if you touch the oven too many times, eventually you learn not to touch it. <laughs> and that was the end. He didn't go on any further than that. But what he communicated in just those few words was exactly the principle that is being kind of brought out here in this. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And how do we learn obedience to God? We learn it by the consequences we endure when we disobey. When we fall out of the, the narrow way and we begin to walk in our lives in a way that isn't right before the Lord, there's consequences that come as a result of it. And, and, and eating and tasting the fruit of those consequences drives us back into a place of obedience. And if we're wise, we eventually come to a place where we say, God, I don't want to turn to the left or to the right. I'm not going to experiment with this. I'm just going to do what you ask me to do. And we learn obedience through our suffering. And so the sufferings of Christ are abounding in us, and the fruit of those sufferings also uh, do as well. 
the, 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 the other form of suffering is obviously the suffering of rejection, but I think that the biggest one, and it kind of dovetails with obedience, is the suffering that brings communion. In Philippians chapter 2, it, it talks about Jesus, how that though he was God, yet he became a man, and though he was a man, he became a servant, and though he was a servant, he became a worm. He became one who was humbled even to the point of the cross. And the Bible says that in that, in that he was brought to that point of going to the cross, it says from there he went from God to man to servant to worm. From there he was exalted to the right hand of God. And so he, he obeyed the will of God for his life and he resisted the temptation to walk outside of the will of God for his life. And the end result of it is that he was as close as it's possible to be to his father which is in heaven. And, and ultimately, that's the will of God for each of our lives as well, is that as we allow him to work his work of sanctification in our lives, and as we don't walk outside of it, that the result of that is going to be that we are close to him ultimately, which is where he wants to bring us. And so the sufferings of Christ abound in us. They do. We go through every one of those things. We go through the suffering, pain of sanctification. We go through the suffering of temptation and resisting it, and we know what it feels like. We go through the suffering of learning obedience and the mistakes that we make and the, and the chastisement that comes in, in following it. We know the, the, the suffering of what it means to be separated from his presence because we're walking in a way that we should not. We know all of those sufferings. But what Paul says is that since we know the sufferings, we also will know the consolation or the comfort, or the encouragement that comes. Meaning that each of those things are going to yield something in our lives that are going to result in glory for us. And here it is. Here's the payoff for suffering. Suffering finds its reason in two things. Number one, in knowing God. It brings us to a place where we can genuinely say, I know you, Lord, and I love you, and I love your presence in my life. And number two, it helps others as well. Paul says, and he goes on to say in verse 6, he says, And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer, or whether we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. Paul says, if we are afflicted and we endure that infliction, then our endurance of it is going to, translate into your endurance of the same thing. And that goes on the same side as the consolation. If we are comforted by God, you're also going to be a partaker of that comfort as well. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be of the comfort. So concerning this process of sanctification within our lives, suffering must perform its perfect work that we might know the hand of the potter as he shapes and makes the person of Christ and forms him within us. Now in verse 8, Paul gives to them his own suffering. He says this. He says, For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble, our tribulation or trial, which came to us in Asia, that's Ephesus, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. He lists three things there that he can describe the level of suffering that he himself was under. Just in case they might think, well, if we were you, Paul, we'd have it easy. You just get to travel around and eat exotic foods in the places you go and plant churches and teach Bible studies. You got it so easy. If we had it like you, and Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant of what it's like to be me. He says, when we were in Ephesus, you just read Acts 19 and you thought that it was a breeze being a part of that riot. He says, but we were pressed beyond measure. That was a form of torture in those days where they would put a criminal who needed to confess a crime and they would bury him up to his neck in sand. And what would happen is he would sit there buried neck deep in sand is that eventually the weight of the sand would collapse in on his chest cavity, making it impossible for him to pull in a breath of air. He would breathe in, expand his chest cavity, but then breathing out, the sand would press him in. And his strength would become small, and the weight of the sand would increase to the point where he couldn't get a breath in anymore. And then he would say, all right, I'll talk. And they'd pull him out of the sand. 
But what Paul's saying here is that the pressure that we were feeling was so much so that it's impossible for me to describe it to you. There's no amount of pressure that anyone's been under that I can equate it to. All I can use for words is that it's beyond measure. There's no way for me to describe it. And then he says it was beyond our strength, number two. Human strength, even Paul's strength. And you look at his strength, he had incredible strength. But Paul says what God allowed us to go through in terms of suffering while we were in Asia superseded even our human ability to endure it. And it was to a point where we, number three, despaired even of life. We just wanted to die. We thought, we don't want to go plant another church. We don't want to see ourselves come through on the other side of it. This is the point right now where we just want to die and go be with God in glory. And this is the end. There's nothing on the other side. of it. Now, that's a pretty intense level of suffering, isn't it? Now, I don't think Paul's lying. I don't think he's exaggerating. I don't think he's trying to paint a picture that wasn't accurate and vivid. This is what he was going through. And you say, why in the world would God allow Paul to have to go through something like this? Because you would think Paul was pretty sanctified. I mean, God's already using him at this point. He should be already prepared. Why is this happening? Paul says, he answers it. He says, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Here's why. That, and that's a reason word, we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. In other words, Paul is saying to them that what God was seeking to work out of my life in this season was a trust in him that was deeper than a level of trust than I had ever known previously before. I didn't trust him with things in my life the way that I was leaning upon my own strength. I was leaning upon my ability to endure persecutions. I was leaning upon my wisdom and, 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 and all my intellect and God brought me beyond the boundaries of my resources, not so that I would die under the weight of that trial, but so that I had no other options but then to trust him. And when I came to that point where only trusting him was the only option, I found that he was completely reliable and that he didn't let me fall and that we didn't die. And thus the glory in that trial and that tribulation is that we learn that we can rest no matter what the circumstance is saying to us, knowing that we're in his hand and that he's able to deliver us even if we can't deliver ourselves. He says, we learned that, or that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead, who delivered us, past tense, from so great a death and does deliver us that's present tense, in whom we trust, and there's, there's what God was seeking to bring forth, isn't it? You can circle that word trust, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. Now, I believe that every one of us in this room, as we look at the, the, our history with God, we can look at times in our life where he has delivered us in the past. And we could even say, we could say, yeah, God does deliver us. He always does. But is, how easy is it for us to look and say, he always will? That's where, that's where things start to fall apart, right? Well, maybe we're in, we'll get to a point where he won't, you know, in the whole thing. And Paul says, God brought me through my sufferings to a place where I can say, I trust, I fully rest, that he is always going to be faithful to deliver me. Even if he doesn't deliver me from death, he might deliver me through death. Death is the ultimate deliverance, isn't it? To be in his presence and glory. And then he says, you also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us, that is the gift of his ministry that was given to him by God, by the means of many person, meaning that the, the purpose that God called them into the ministry was for the sake of others, for the sake of the Christians, the many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. Paul says, God's given us this ministry and your prayer is helping in this ministry and, and God's given it to us so that we can reach many and that many would give thanks on our behalf for what we've done. And he says, for our rejoicing is this. This is our rejoicing in our trials and in our difficulties. The testimony of our conscience that in simplicity and godly sincerity not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation or lifestyle in the world and more abundantly 
towards you. Paul says, the thing that causes me to rejoice, even in the midst of my sufferings and trials, is he says that in my conscience, in the heart of hearts, I know that I have conducted myself before you with, first of all, simplicity. Simplicity means plainness. It means vulnerability. It means openness. It means that if you examine my life on the inside, you're going to see the same thing that you see on the outside. There's a plainness to what I am. It's not fancy. It's not sleight of hand. It's not I say one thing and then twist things around and make you think something that's not really what it is. Simplicity. Paul says, that's been my, my life, and you can testify to it. He says not only simplicity, but also godly sincerity. It's the same word as authenticity. What it literally means is without hypocrisy. In those days, it meant without wax or without makeup, meaning that it was without a facade or without a veneer, meaning that it was consistent through and through. And Paul's saying, that's, the, that's my rejoicing, is that what you've seen on the outside of my life is the same thing that you've seen on the inside of my life. I didn't hide anything from you. And he says, and also not with fleshly wisdom, man's wisdom, but he says, by the grace of God, we have had our conversation or lifestyle both in the world, that's to the lost, and also more abundantly towards you, that's the saved. He says, for we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge, and I trust that you shall acknowledge even unto the end. And as also you have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. There is a mutual enjoyment of one another in this. And in this confident, I was, confidence, I was minded to come unto you before that you might have the second benefit. And so Paul says, understand this, is that you might be going through afflictions and sufferings, but know this, that I am too. And that you might be going through the pains of sanctification at the place where you're at in your Christian experience, but know this, I am too. And God knows what he's doing in these sufferings and in these trials to bring us into the fullness of what we're supposed to be in Christ. And what he is producing is he's producing a simplicity and a sincerity and an a, um, unfaltering faith that we can trust in him and rely on him that results in rest and fruit within our lives, both in knowing God and also in our service towards others. He goes on now. And he talks about his plans. And I'm going to move through this very quickly um, because it really is just Paul's plans towards them. Um, and I want to just get up through chapter 2, verse 13, at least reading it. Um, because if I spend a whole study next week on these verses, I will bore you to tears. So bear with me for just a moment. He says, I was minded to come to you the second time that you might have a second benefit, verse 16, and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and then from you or of you to be brought on my way towards Judea. So I wanted to move south through that uh, Grecian uh, um, area down from Thessalonica and make my way to you and then you could send me to Judea. And so when I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purposed? Do I purpose according to the flesh, flippantly, lightly, that with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay, or, you know, maybe I will, maybe I won't. We'll see how it goes. I'm just kind of going by things. He says, no. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. In other words, when God speaks to us and gives us his will or his, his, his uh, intentions, he doesn't say maybe I will and maybe I won't. If God says it, he's absolutely going to do it. For all of the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Paul says, I seek in my life to do what I say I'm gonna do because that's what God does. And if that's what God does, then that's what I should do. And so Paul says, it's not a wishy-washy desire. I'm going to come even though I haven't come to you yet. Now, think about this. If God says that all of his promises in his Bible are yes and amen, then for you and I, that should mean that our Bible should be the most precious thing that we have in all of, all of what we possess. Because it means that every time that we see a promise that God gives in the Bible, we can hold it before him in prayer and have confidence that we're praying according to his will. And in praying according to his will, the Bible says that we know that we have the things that we ask. There is nothing like praying the word of God. 
to take the things that God has said and to hold them before him. God, you said that if I train up my children in the way that they go, that when they're old, they'll not depart from it. God, you said that if I seek you with all of my heart to the best of my ability, that you would cause my children to be the restorer of the old paths and lights upon the paths that, 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 that men are to dwell in, that you'll raise up another generation. God, your word says that if I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you'll fill me with it. God, your word says it's your will that I be filled with wisdom and that you'll give it to me if I ask. So God, would you please fill me with wisdom? God, your word says that you didn't return yet because you want to seek and to save that which is lost. Would you reach and seek and save those that are lost in my life and would you use me to do it? And so on and so on and so on it goes. God, you said that you didn't destroy the Ninevites because there was 120,000 kids that didn't know their right hand from their left. Will you destroy the United States of America, God, when there are more than 120,000 that don't know their right hand from their left? Will you not be merciful? Let me encourage you. Pray the scriptures. There is nothing more powerful or more effective that you can do than to pray the word of God. He says, Now he that establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. He's made us your pastor who has also sealed us and given the earnest or the down payment of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul. I call God to the witness stand in my life that it was to spare you that I came not as yet unto Corinth. In other words, I, I needed to receive word that you received my last epistle so that it would affect my demeanor in coming unto you. Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but we are helpers of your joy, for by faith you stand. But I did determine this with myself, that I would not come again unto you in heaviness. I didn't want to come there as, as the Father. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? In other words, I might have made you sorry by the letter that I wrote because it produced such pain within you. But he says, who is it that's going to make me then glad, but the same one which was made sorry by me? In other words, as you repented and responded to what I wrote to you, it made me glad. And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly towards you. Love is what motivated my last letter. But if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. So that contrarywise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch grief or sorrow. Wherefore, I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. Remember back in 1 Corinthians, there was a man who was living or sleeping with his stepmother? It was really the most outrageous of all of the sins that were taking place in the church in Corinth. And Paul commanded the Christians to kick him out of the fellowship, and they did. But what we're learning here is that that man repented of that sin, but that now the Corinthians were not letting him back into the fellowship. And Paul's saying, listen, you received the, the, the word to kick him out. It had the proper effect in that he repented of his sin, now let him back in. Otherwise, why, you know, why did Jesus die if there's no provision for the forgiveness of sins when we repent of our sins? He says, for to this end, this was the reason also that I did write, that I might know the proof of you, whether you would be obedient in all things, a test that they certainly did pass. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgive anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Circle that verse right there. Because what Paul is saying is that in this thing, you are leaving yourselves wide open for the devil because you are opening the door for him to use one of his signature moves to destroy your church. What are the devices of Satan? Wouldn't it be nice if you could see into the repertoire, the playbook of your enemy, your arch enemy, the person that, that, that is against you the most? Do you know that you can? Because the one who's against you the most is none other than Satan himself. And the Bible declares to us and tells us what his devices or his avenues are. They are very small. 
but very effective. He uses, first of all, temptation. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And he works those things with such skill. He knows how to use them. But in our understanding of that, we're on defense against it automatically. We can fight against that way. Temptation is one of his devices. Another one of his devices is division. He operates like a roaring lion, the Bible says. How does a lion hunt its prey? Divide and then conquer. And so Satan comes into a church or into a family or into a marriage, into anything instituted by God, and he sows discord and seeks to bring division in the ranks. And once he can bring division, it's only a matter of time before he can then conquer and remove all spiritual power and effectiveness from that group of people. That's the device that Paul is talking about in this instance. If you don't let this guy back in, then you are opening up yourselves for division because he's going to begin to cause greater problems in your church. Let him back in. Be unified. The third device of Satan, the third and final, is the device of deception. He loves to lie. Jesus said that he's the father of lies. And he knows how to take 99% truth Put in 1% lie, just enough to veer us off course and to subvert our faith or our church or our doctrine or our behavior in some way. Be on guard against the devices of Satan. Temptation, division, and deception. Small playbook, but he uses it extremely well. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel and a door was opened to me of the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother but taking my leave of them, I went from there into Macedonia. And we will start or stop right there. And next week, and this is why I, I, I cruised. I went five minutes over tonight and, and I did that because next week, the, the real glory, the gold of 2 Corinthians begins as Paul begins to talk to us about the substance that sanctifies or that comes from sanctification. Did you know that God is on a relentless pursuit? And the musicians can come. We're closing. God is on a relentless pursuit to sanctify you, to change you from what you were in your former life, to bring you into authenticity from the inside out. Have you ever noticed how there are some things in your life that God changes almost instantaneously? I know for me, when I, got, when I gave my life to Christ, I went from being a sailor with my mouth to being instantaneously, you know, I don't know what the word is without sounding self-righteous. I didn't curse anymore when, when the Lord got, got a hold of my life. And it was like a light switch went off. It was instantaneous. It didn't even come out. It couldn't come out. It was like it, there was a, a thing there. And there were other things that were like that too in my life, just automatic. It was like God just flipped a switch and they were gone. But then there were other things in my life that were a battle. I mean, battle. Like, God, what in the world? I can't shake this. This attitude or this inclination or this habit or this personality trait. God, what is the deal with it? Get it out of my life already. It's already, ugh, I'm sick of it. Take it out. But he didn't. And I, and I stumbled there. Like, God, I know you can. Why won't you? Here's why. Because God is in this thing of sanctification. And there are some things within our lives that the only way that we see those things removed is through the suffering and the struggle that those things cause within us to where we come on the inside into agreement with God concerning what that thing in our life really is. And when God brings us to that point where we hate our sin to the degree that it needs to be hated because it's that bad, then God begins to do his work in removing it from our lives. Another aspect to this whole thing is that God sees what he's going to do over the whole span of our Christian walk. If you walk as a Christian in this world for 60 years, then God knows that in that 60-year span of time, he might have 50 things that he's going to address in your life. From the simple things of you know, the cigarettes and, and you know, you know, the little things to like the greater, deeper things like pride, arrogance, uh, you know, unfaithfulness with time and laziness, all those different things that he sees within us. And he says, over this span of time, I'm going to deal with these things. But he knows, I'm not going to touch this one until about 20 years in. 
And, and until that point, we're going to deal with everything up to that. And then we'll get there. We think, no, 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 God, now. <laughs> I want that one. Deal with that one now. God says, we'll get there. Learn to hate it <laughs> in the meantime. Point? The point is that pain is a necessary part of sanctification. You can't escape it. And if you do escape it, then you miss out on what God has for us. And so Paul highlighting the, the process of suffering in this thing and the, the abundant life that he's seeking to give to us. And he's going to tell us the way that we can live that life as we progress from here. Father, we thank you tonight that as we study this uh, opening portion of 2 Corinthians, Lord, it lays such hope uh, in our hearts as we consider, Lord, the great plan that you have for each one of our lives. We don't deserve, Lord, to be um, even saved. We don't deserve, Lord, that our sins would be taken away as they have been. And we certainly don't deserve, Lord, that you would take our lives and, and, and take them like clay in your hand and put it upon your wheel and, and fashion and form us into something that is so beautiful and so indescribable. But Lord, you've told us that that's what you're doing. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would just let there be a softening of our hearts and that in areas of our life where maybe we've taken things back or maybe where we've become that uh, Christian that is leading a double life and we've hidden um, the old man behind a veneer of Christian knowledge and Christian words and Christian attitudes. Lord, we pray that tonight you would put your hands upon the clay again. That as it were, you'd get into the garden of our hearts and that you dig your hands into the soil there. And that the sweat from your brow would drip into us, Lord. And that the aroma of who you are would make us what we're supposed to be. And so it's our prayer for that, Lord. And we ask that as we go through these, these words, these verses and chapters, and we see, Lord, the glory of what you've ordained for us, that we wouldn't just learn it intellectually, but it would become a full part of who we are. And so we ask you for these things tonight. And we thank you, Lord, for your kindness towards us. And it's in Jesus' name that we give you glory. Amen. Let's all stand together.